Welcome to First Up, this is Ra Pare. that is Thursday, the 3rd of November, Call Nathan Rarere, aho, coming up, we go to the UK, and we find out about the latest woes facing new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and as the latest financial stability report warns of a rocky road ahead, Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson is here. We also ask an expert about the variant soup that's leading to rising COVID case numbers as we head into summer, plus that Kane Williamson dropped catch, and the blasphemers accusing him our Kane of cheating? I mean, it's Kane Williamson. If he says he took a catch, he took a catch. All I know is that when you're in the air diving for balls like that, half the time you don't know whether or not you've caught it or not. Wouldn't life be easier if everything was able to be slow mode? Welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere and we will start today in the UK. Our correspondent Ellie J is uh, on the line with us right now. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora Nathan, I'm good thanks, how are you? I'm oh, good. Now Matt Hancock, interesting man in the British Parliament there, uh, so UK Parliament, uh, he's the biggest story, tell us why is he off to the jungle? He is, this is, I mean, it's the biggest story, the biggest news of the past day, really, at the moment. Uh, And one of my favourite stories, Matt Hancock, you'll remember, was Health Secretary during the pandemic here. He had to resign over a scandal, which was him, he was uh, having an affair, and he was conducting an affair at the office and breaking coronavirus guidelines as well. CCTV images were released of it, and so he had to step down from his position then. Since then, he has been a bit quiet. He did come out, he was a supporter of Rishi Sunak to be leader of the Conservative Party. And then, if you'll remember, um, last week, there was a viral video of um, Rishi Sunak going into number 10 and skipping past Matt Hancock when he went in um, for the handshake as well. So that was the latest we'd heard from him until yesterday, when he announced he's going to be on the reality TV programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. So that's where, in this show, if you haven't seen it, is where celebrities go into the jungle in Australia for three weeks. They face challenges to kind of earn food and um, points, and uh, the members of the public can vote for who they want to see face these challenges, uh, who has to leave the jungle, and ultimately who who wins it as well. Um, so he said he's going to be, he's a surprise contestant on this. So he said they've been chasing him about this for a couple of months, and then uh, in the past few days when he, he realised he wasn't going to have a cabinet position, he's decided that he's going to take a back seat in politics and he's going to go for what he calls this opportunity as well. So the reaction to this, he's he's had the whip removed, uh, which means he's effectively expelled from the Conservative Party. It can be reinstated later, though. But the reaction from MPs has been mostly shock and surprise. A few people have, have sort of condemned him for this as well. And hilarity. So one Conservative, Conservative MP called him an absolute prat, is what he said. Uh, one Labour MP this morning as well said he wouldn't watch it, but he knew that uh, MPs across all parties would be calling in to vote for Matt Hancock to do the challenges as well. So he published a piece in The Sun this morning, this paper, um, 
over here saying why he's done it. He said he's not lost his marbles. Uh, he hasn't had too many pina coladas. He is doing it apparently um, to reach people who don't usually engage in politics and show this more human side to himself and also promote some of his um, campaigns that he works on as well. So he said he's donating his fee to charity for this. He also said, interestingly, that he'd arranged with producers of the show to be able to still talk to his constituents. So I have no idea how he's going to do <laughs> oh, that. Sorry. But I, Oops. Sorry. I mean, no, will he have to go off? Is there a phone booth in the in the jungle where he can nip off and take calls? We don't know. Yeah. But he's now landed in Australia, in Brisbane. So he's probably missed all of this whilst being on the flight. And he's ready to go into the jungle now. Sorry, I shouldn't have laughed out loud. Very unprofessional. Um, he's in. Uh, sorry, he's out. He's in. He's out. He's in and out. And I'm not talking about Matt. I'm talking about Rishi Sunak. So is what? So now he's going to COP27? He is. So after saying the other day, when we were talking on Monday, we were talking about the fact that he said he had too much work to do on the fiscal statement and wouldn't be going. And so that was the um, the budget that's coming out. The autumn statement that's coming out soon as well. After that, there was a huge backlash from MPs, also members of the public, members of environmental groups as well, who were saying it kind of showed the government didn't really care about the environment or didn't care about being a leading uh, a leading force behind COP27. Um, a source then said after all that happened, he would attend if enough progress was made. Uh, and now, lo and behold, he will be attending COP27. So he posted on, on Twitter saying uh, there's no long-term prosperity without action on climate climate change. Uh, we've got to invest in renewables. And he said, that's why I will attend COP27 next week um, to deliver on. So COP26 was in Glasgow, and he's saying he's going to deli deliver on the legacy of Glasgow, um, building this secure, sustainable future as well. So some people noting that, that the change of heart kind of came out after um, Boris Johnson said he would attend. That's, of course, pure speculation. Um, it's happening in Egypt next week. And also talk today about whether or not King Charles will attend. He was advised by Liz Truss's government not to. But now that Rishi Sunak is going, we'll have to wait and see if maybe the door is open again for Charles to attend. It is interesting. Ali, thank you so much for your time. Uh, that is the goings-on in uh, UK politics with Ali J. Yeah, it's interesting that whole uh, going on the reality shows thing um, because I think it's you know it's often looked down upon. However, you got to say it works, doesn't it? I think it started working with Rodney Hyde when he first went on um, Dancing with the Stars was one show to you know sometimes you could open yourself up to audiences uh, that aren't interested in politics so it'll be very interesting to see but talk to your constituents police anyway let's go to australia now this might sound really familiar so listen close this is about australia interest rates uh, there are rising too it's at the fastest pace in australia in 30 years and like us australians are feeling the pinch as the cost of living soars and as the abc's matt bamford reports economists warn there's some way to go before inflation starts to slow it's been a torrid time for the hospitality industry. Marichidor restaurant owner Chris battled through the pandemic only to be hit by inflation. So we're struggling with staff, we're struggling with you know, people coming into the restaurant. We're, our restaurant's down about 40% over the past two weeks. To be the first off the list of where people are spending their money, it's just more hurt. More hurt after more hurt after more hurt. Now it's rising interest rates adding to his stress. Our mortgage is about 300 bucks a week. It's now 400 bucks a week. So 
you know, you're talking an extra $400, $430. You know, for our kids, if they want a chocolate bar at the uh, the supermarket, we are educating them to be poor. They cannot buy anything unless it's, you know, 40% off or more. Interest rates are rising at their fastest pace in 30 years. With inflation now tipped to reach 8% later this year, the Reserve Bank says it's willing to go even harder to cool the economy. Restaurant owner Chris says it's a blunt instrument and the government needs to step up. It's the only tool that, that is in his box um, in trying to, to bring down the inflation rate. The problem is, is I mean, this is all government policy. We see a situation where next year, you know, those people earning six-figure salaries are going to be getting massive tax reductions, and that's just going to make it more and more difficult for the people down the bottom end. Sarah Hunter is a senior economist at KPMG. Higher interest rates can't really do an awful lot about, for instance, the high level of fuel prices or the impact of the floods on food prices. You know, the RBA doesn't have um, any control over those things, really, and so we, we kind of have to wear, if you like, those price increases. But there are signs higher rates are starting to make a difference. We know that it's had an impact in the property market. We can see the, the fall in um, property prices that's come through. Uh, we can also see it having an impact on uh, new uh, residential construction demands so the number of people wanting to build a home. We can start to see its impact coming through in some parts of household spending, but I do think it's going to be much more a story about 2023 uh, rather than the rest of this year. So we've just got to wait a bit more. Finance Minister Katie Gallagher told RN Breakfast the government has to walk a fine line, providing relief without adding to inflation. Where we made the deliberate decision to invest in a cost of living package that took pressure off households but, and delivered an economic dividend, but didn't add to the inflation challenge. So that was in, you know, childcare, PPL, cheaper medicines, looking at what we can do in the housing uh, area and trying to get wages moving again. When you look and read the governor's uh, speech last night about how difficult this in- dealing with this inflation challenge is, but how important it is. But sure, you know, we will always look at what more we can be doing if, if it's useful and meaningful and doesn't add to this inflation problem. With power prices tipped to soar by more than 50% in the coming months, the government is considering intervening in the energy market. That work is underway. I can't give you a time frame on the completion of that. We are aware this is not just a big, another big impost on households, it's also uh, a big issue for um, industry, um, for business, for manufacturers as well. Back in Maroochydore, restaurant owner Chris says any effort to ease the cost of living must be targeted at those most vulnerable. Our government needs to understand that you know, the majority of our economy is not run on the back of people on $100,000 plus. Yeah, the majority of our uh, of our economy is based on you know, people who are struggling to get by and we need policy to assist those people struggling to get by. Maruchador restaurateur Chris ending that report from the ABC's Matt Bamford. It's quarter past five. Normally I ask you what you'd like to message on. A lot of people, is that right, Marvash? Sending in on the cricket, 2101. At least one uh, message that's coming this morning, 2101. Kane Williamson's catch. He's still, is he still a Saint, Saint Kane? Do you believe that? Uh, 2101 as well. What, also, what do you think about that thing of um, politicians going on celebrity shows or. Uh, you know what I mean? Any of those ones. Appearances. Does that seem right? Is it unbecoming? Is it clever? What is it? Because it's one of the two. Uh, 2101. You can let me know or first up at rnz.co.nz or if you like, you can just listen to the program.
and we're happy to bring it to you. We go to Europe now, uh, where our correspondent, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland, is with us. Kia ora, doctor. Um, and it's it's a horrible way to start doing this, because but it's a real thing that's going. What's the latest in the, the, the Russia-Ukraine war? Oh, good morning. Uh, well, Russia has agreed to resume its participation in a deal brokered by Turkey and the UN to keep grain and other commodities moving out of Ukraine's ports. Now, Russia and Turkey agreed that a humanitarian grain corridor will continue the same way as before with prioritised shipments to African nations. Now, Russia suspended its participation in the grain deal over the weekend, citing allegations of a Ukrainian drone attack against its Black Sea fleet. Um, If we move on to Kyiv, water and electricity supplies were restored um, Wednesday, a day after they were disrupted by Russian missile strikes on key infrastructure sites across Ukraine in retaliation to attacks against um, the Black Sea fleet. Now, Kyiv will still have um, scheduled blackouts to manage power demand, and 1,000 heating points will be set up for people to seek shelter from the cold during winter. And uh, the UN Security Council is scheduled to vote on a resolution to establish a commission to investigate Russian claims that Ukraine and the United States are carrying out military biological activities. Now, many say that the claims are unfounded and diplomats say it's unlikely that the Russian resolution will be adopted by the Security Council when it's put to the vote. Mm. There is a Russian enclave uh, called Kaliningrad that borders Poland. So why are Polish soldiers laying razor wire along that border? Well, the government ordered the temporary sealing of the border to prevent what it fears is another migration crisis. Early in October, Russia's Aviation Authority announced plans to launch flights from the Middle East and North Africa to Kaliningrad, and Poland is um, now reacting to this. Now, Poland's defence ministry said the construction of a temporary barrier along the 210-kilometre border will comprise three rows of razor wire, two and a half metres high and three metres wide. Now, as a reminder, last year, Poland's border with Belarus became the site of a major migration crisis with a large number of people crossing illegally. And in June, actually, Poland completed the construction of the steel wall on the border with Belarus. Hmm. Um, Let's go to elections. So Denmark's just had the... Their elections, the centre government secured by voters in Greenland. Yeah, the two Greenland seats meant that the red bloc of um, Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen reached the required 90-seat majority in the Danish parliament. However, on Wednesday, Frederiksen formally handed her resignation to Queen Margaret, after which talks to form a government with party leaders will begin. Now, Frederick said that there there was no longer a majority behind the government in its current form, and talks were needed before a new government could be formed, of which she promised to build a broad centre government. And sticking with politics, let's go to Italy now, Uh, not a centre-left, a far-right government there. The Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, has uh, gone and banned unlicensed raves. Apparently they are a crime now. Yeah, she said the new crime. She calls it the new crime of invasion for dangerous gatherings of more than 50 people would attract up to six years in jail and opens up the possibility of wiretapping rave organisers. Earlier this week in Modena, a thousand ravers were ordered to leave a warehouse rave after residents complained of 48 hours of non-stop techno music at a Halloween party. Now, Prime Minister Maloney said the new law aimed to protect people from harm 
and that it would signal that the Italian state was no longer lax in respecting the rules. Now, critics accuse the government of um, hypocrisy here. They accuse the government of targeting young ravers while ignoring a fascist march at the weekend at Benito Mussolini's hometown by 2,000 black-clad supporters of Italy's wartime dictator. No dancing. They, they better hope Kevin Bacon doesn't show up, you know, and sort of come in here and <laughs> do a foot. Thank you. With uh, footloose. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much, Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland, who joins us every week from Sweden. It's 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So coming up, we talk economics with the Finance and Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson. I'm also going to tell you about a pretty stunning world record, uh, which is one that a lot of you may be able to relate to. And ESR Research addresses concerns about the variant soup feeding the latest wave of COVID-19. Local democracy reporting programme time now. This morning we are in North Canterbury and it's David Hill that's uh, with us. Morena, David. There's heaps to talk about that's going on. Um, local government, obviously, a big thing. Tell us about the local government review and, and the reaction to that. Well, I think there's a, a bit of concern that um, amalgamation could be back on the cards. It's a bit of an ugly word in North Canterbury. Um particularly with the smaller councils, and, and um, I think the concern around the sort of what they call the, the unfunded mandates, you know, when, when central government passes responsibilities on to local government and it doesn't come with money. Yeah, <laughs> it always is, and they're always worried about the assets they've got there too as well. What about... Um, oh, exactly. And, and the pay as well for people? Does that How does that balance out around there? Well, um you, you certainly don't uh, become a councillor for the money in a, in a region like North Canterbury because they, they don't really earn enough to, to, to live off. And I mean, in, in Hiranui, for example, they have um, remuneration pool of 305000 to split between 10 councillors. So, you know, if they're talking about um, one of the proposals is, is, is more money for the councillors, well, uh, you'd, you'd probably have to that, at least double that remuneration pool to give them a decent pay and... and um, I, I gather a one percent rates rise is only two hundred thousand dollars in, in Hidanui, so yeah. you'd probably need to raise the rates by several percent to actually give them a decent pay. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's good on them too. The people for getting involved, obviously not involved uh, for the money, like you say, and that as well. But then it also leaves it open to only people that can afford to do that, right? As as a as a as a an interesting other job. Yeah, interesting case. So tell us about well, this. Well, most too. of them, most of them are sort of retired. Yeah, right. And, yeah. They got the time for it. So well, close to retirement, yeah. What What about this? You've been looking at the councils joining together to oppose the uh, the three waters reforms. Yeah, well, um, uh, the Auckland and Christchurch mayors got together and um, took took the Waimaka mayor Dan Gordon up with them and and uh, to take on uh, the government over three waters. And I think well, Dan Gordon's the um, deputy chair of. Uh, of the communities for local democracy, so I think he seemed to be fronting it. But yeah, they were just putting up a, a different proposal where it, uh, we you might the, the councils might group together as a region and look after the orders together and and, and hopefully apply for a government funding pool. Yeah. Um, also, too, uh, the region's new leaders getting their feet under the desk. So, what's been happening since the the local body elections? Well, probably the most interesting one I went to was the, the Environment Canterbury um, inaugural meeting where um, they had to vote for their chair and deputy chair. And, of course, they've got the situation where they've got the two two uh, appointed Naitahu councillors 
and um, one of the Notahu councillors got up to, to to nominate a Peter Scott from South Canterbury against a, a against a um, councillor who's also in Otahu, which was a bit unusual. And it ended up in an, in an 8-8 tie, so they had to draw it out of a hat um, between Councillor Peter Scott of South Canterbury and Councillor Craig Pauling of, from Christchurch. And and um, Peter Scott won it by um, name drawn out of a by, hat. By hat. At least it wasn't, you know, who hit the right. most sixes in the final, uh, which has uh, done people right, exactly. <laughs> the other The other ones were pretty predictable with the Deputy Mayors being reappointed uh, across North Canterbury. So. Yeah. Oh, well, there's like but a bit of continuity. There is plenty going on. Thank you very much for your time, sir. There he is, uh, David Hill, uh, who's uh, on the beat there, of course, for the Local Democracy Reporting Programme in North Canterbury. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. 3rd of November, some of us are going to have to sit down uh, and have a cup of tea after one of these, I'll tell you. Anyway, happy birthday today to Stuart Goddard. Who? Oh, only Adam Ant. Yeah, coolest guy in 1982. Uh, he's 68 years old today. Roseanne Barr is 70. Happy birthday to Roseanne. Dame Anna Wintour is 73 years old today. So is boxer Larry Holmes. Okay, you ready to sit down on this? Charles Bronson was born 101 years ago today. I needed to have a sit down after that. Goodness me. Um, born on this day in 1886, a little company you might have heard of, born in, in Pukukura, uh, there in Waikato, by Henry Reynolds, Anchor Butter. And he got the name. Um, it was inspired by a tattoo on the arm of one of his workers, and it became one of the country's best-known trademarks, of course. So happy birthday to you, Anchor. And on this day in 1978, one of the greatest theme song phrases uh, that you've got there in 1978, Different Strokes, Katrina. Yeah, I don't think there was much better than this. The uh, Mr. Drummond, remember that? Arnold Willis, good catchphrase, Mrs. Garrison. Uh, Yeah, 1978. It ran until 1985, and there was 189 episodes of that, so it was very, very successful straight away and continued to stay that way. The crazy world record I wanted to tell you about, the world's loudest snorer was found on this day in 1987 in Canada. His name is Mark Hammond. Uh, 90 decibels, and if you're wondering how loud that is, it's the sound of a revving motorbike 7.3 metres away. That's how loud that is every night. Uh, And in 1992, a 20-year-old called Justin Weaver won the election to be the town judge of Randolph in New York. And he did that because he was just looking through some files, realised that no one had put themselves up for the position. So he put himself up for the position, and he won by one vote which was his uh, for himself. So 20-year-old Justin Weaver became the judge of Randolph, New York. And that is our day in history we call the 3rd of November. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Charles Beckford, kia ora, how are you? I am well, thank you, Nathan. How cool would it be just to go into the job that you want because nobody else was there. I know. I was wondering, like, great. I'm the town judge. Are you serious? Like, That's I mean, right. 20 years old, well done That's to right. him. And I let myself off this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, negative equity is a, uh, a word I've heard the last couple of days. How yeah. bad is negative e- equity when we zoom in on it right now? Well, um, it's uh, estimated about 2% of home uh, borrowers uh, are in negative equity at the moment. Uh, that's the case where the value of the house is less than 
the value of what you owe on it.、Mm. Now, if you don't sell, then you'd have to say, well, it's a theoretical thing on paper, but there are consequences. Obviously, you're going to have to come up.、Um, a lot of people will be for renewal of the. Of your borrowing of the mortgage,、uh, and clearly, if the value of the house has fallen, then the banks are going to take that into account, and、uh, you might find yourself、uh, in some some strife there.、Uh, the other thing, of course, is that it may, in time, affect things like credit ratings, your ability to raise finance elsewhere, if you're using the house as security for something. So, there are. There can be significant、um, problems with it,、uh, and it can have quite、uh, negative consequences on your financial well-being.、Um, and you know, at the moment,、uh, for people who have borrowed recently,、um, you know, while the housing market has been falling, they may well find themselves、uh, with a few problems. The point being, get the best advice you can as early as you can. And don't panic.、Um, friends of mine, about a decade or so ago, were in the very same situation. They worked out、uh, and they managed the scheme for the repayment of their mortgage. They had had a mortgage holiday and and other issues. Redundancy was involved there、uh, in that case as well. Through good management, good planning, and cooperation from the bank. Uh, then they got through,、hmm. and this goes to the point that we've been hearing, which is the Reserve Bank telling trading banks that they need to be responsible in times like this.、Um, they need to help people through the, you know, the bad times, the tough times, as much as they've made money out of people during the good times. Yeah, Giles, thank you very much for your time, sir. You can hear more from the learned Giles and the business team on Morning Report this morning at ten two seven. Let's keep it financial. The Reserve Bank released its half-yearly financial stability report yesterday, which offered reassurance that our financial institutions remain strong, but also raised some concerns. So our producer Matthew Tunison discussed the report with the Finance and Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. Matthew asked about the staffing shortage highlighted in that report, which has businesses across the board. Stretched to the max. I guess my starting point on that is that I'm I'm never going to be unhappy that people are in work. Unemployment, as we know, has a massive scarring effect on individuals, on families, and we've seen the impact of that over many years in New Zealand. So having unemployment down at 3.3 percent really is something to celebrate. On the other side of the coin, I'm well aware that that also represents some real stress for employers finding the staff that they need, and and obviously we've worked hard to to train people up. Lots of people have had the free apprenticeships and the targeted trade training and programs like mana and mahi and so on, but also we now have to look towards immigration to fill those skill gaps, and that's really the big push that we've been putting in the last couple of months to to get the border back open, get the the working holiday visa people in for our hospitality and. Tourism businesses, but also the accredited employer scheme that's allowing people to bring other workers in more easily. That's building up over time. You know, I understand some people are still frustrated a little by the timings there, but we're doing our best to build that up to support those businesses to find the staff that they need. But having plenty of people in work and being paid reasonably well is a good starting point for dealing with what is a hugely challenging global environment that's going to put pressure on the New Zealand economy. Because we just don't have the people in the country at the moment, do we? Across many sectors, it seems. Can, do you have a figure of the number of, of additional workers that we really need in this country? 
there's a there's a wide range of sectors and a wide range of industries and and business to business that varies a bit in terms of the numbers that are needed. We know, for example, that through that working holiday visa scheme, we're going to have well over thirty five thousand people coming through for the hospitality and tourism industries alone, and they're still calling out for more more people too. This is genuinely a global problem. And when I was in the United States recently meeting other finance ministers at the World Bank meetings, everybody was asking the same questions about where are the staff that we need. And so, you know, we're, we're in a global environment here. We have to work really hard to make sure that we attract people to come to New Zealand. But we also have to keep training New Zealanders as well and, and filling those skill gaps as much as we can at home as well. To mortgage holders at the at the moment, it's things are going to get much more expensive, aren't they? The average percentage of disposable income dedicated to servicing debt is expected to rise from nine to twenty percent, which is pretty massive. I, how are some people going to be able to afford that? Yeah, look, it is going to put stress on some households, and there's absolutely no denying that what the financial stability report from the Reserve Bank has said is this is particularly the case for people who took out mortgages in 2021 and, and early 2022 with interest rates that were lower, and when they come to refix their mortgages, they're finding themselves having to come up with a significant increase in, in, in their payments. I think it's really important to distinguish between what's called mortgage stress and those who simply you know can't meet their payments and end up with mortgagey sales. There is a gap there. What it means is those people will be making very careful decisions about their discretionary spending. They may need to go and talk to their banks about changing payment options and, and making things a little bit easier. And I certainly encourage our retail banks to be supportive of those people. But yeah, this is a, a percentage of people, particularly those in, who've been recent borrowers who, who are going to find this tough. It is one of those lessons that when you borrow money, for a long-term thing like a mortgage, it's not always going to be at that same rate. And, and you know, we're looking for the banks and those people to work closely together to get through this difficult period. And so you're expecting mortgagey sales here, is that what we're... Yeah, not so many. I mean, that's the point I'm trying to make, is that right now what the Financial Stability Report actually shows is that people are getting through. But what's in the report is a series of scenarios that say, well, if interest rates lift by this amount, if unemployment were to rise by a certain amount, then you're going to have a much bigger group of people finding it harder to meet their mortgage. But those people, many of them will get through it just by tightening their belts. There will be a small percentage who may not, and that's when you get into the mortgagee's house. But actually what the report says is that number at this point in time is very low, and as long as we can find that balance of seeing inflation come down without it matching Massively affecting unemployment, then we will see most people get through uh, unscathed. Okay, I, I'd like to turn to COVID next. We spoke to Dr. Anna Brooks from the University of Auckland. She's an immunologist there. Uh, she and some of her colleagues have been uh, uh, pretty frustrated, I think it would be fair to say, by the approach of health authorities currently to the pandemic. We've got more than 20,000 cases over the past week alone, many of them reinfections. Experts talking about a quote-unquote variant soup, which is infecting people with all manner of COVID strains. Do you feel like the government's doing enough here? I mean, the the, the messaging seems to have largely stopped, and um, you know, it seems to be life as normal. Is are we sitting on our hands? 
No, I, I don't feel that way. And, you know, we continue, obviously, to have a number of, of precautions in place. We still have the isolation period for when you get COVID of seven days. We still require masks to be worn in, in healthcare settings. We still do have access to vaccines and boosters. We take our advice on those, the latter part of that, on vaccines and boosters from our, our vaccine technical advisory group, which is a group of experts, and they have continued to tell us that allergies for that should be at the at the 50 plus age group but obviously we want them to continue to give us advice and if the evidence changes then we're, we're happy to change our approach we're continuing to work on the availability of, of new vaccines as they arise as well so we're continuing to do that and we we do ask people to continue to be vigilant and careful think of others around them and and make sure they do follow the rules that are in place and on the vaccines I mean we've we've got people who aren't eligible for their fourth dose of the Pfizer vaccine who aren't in any of the eligible groups. They're not over 50. They're not in any of the vulnerable categories, but they'd like a top-up. They're worried about getting COVID. Some of them have never had it, but they can't. It, it was back in May that we sort of rolled out that first dose. What's the hold-up getting it to the rest of the people who'd like it? Again, we take our advice on, on who should be eligible from our, from our experts and the evidence and the data around where the benefits are from lowering the age and what any risks associated might be have to be weighed up by those experts. So we know that there is you know, further consideration of that taking place and as soon as we get the advice from our experts from the Ministry of Health then we would make a move on that. We've got existing contracts in place with Pfizer around the delivery of vaccine and as I say there are new bivariant vaccines being developed which we're obviously also you know, wanting to make sure that we get and have them out there as appropriate. So listening to our experts, listening to our Ministry of Health has served us well through COVID. We are continuing to do that. And, and is vaccine stock a consideration that's being made by the health experts at this point? Yeah, I don't believe that is the issue. Um, you know, we've had, as I say, we've got agreements in place with Pfizer. We've had good supplies. Obviously, I, I certainly hear from a number of people who follow these things closely that they're keen on the, the latest vaccine that's being approved in another country. We go through our own approval process here. We go through our own contracting process and we want to make sure we get the best possible vaccines in place and deliver them based on evidence to the right people at the right time. So I know that's under active further consideration and as soon as we get the advice and as soon as the evidence is there, we would make a change to the policy. And why not just really push the message, wear a mask if you're in a in a busy place with lots of people, you know, test for air quality, real things that can be done. Has the government lost the social cohesion necessary to effectively manage COVID-19. <laughs> Oh, look, I think, you know, we can, the, the advice does continue to be to wear a mask when you, you know, you feel that you, you should and that you're in an environment perhaps where you, you aren't in a, in a position to be able to be confident about the ventilation or the, or you've got concerns. That, that advice is there. We require it in healthcare settings, obviously. But beyond there, you know, do take yourself back a little bit. We, we wanted to make sure that we, we maintained the social licence to do what we were doing. And we do always base it on evidence, but we equally all have to also have to be aware that we need people to follow along and you know there are certain environments where I still you know see plenty of people wearing masks I think people are making those choices and things like aeroplanes and buses and so on and we do encourage people to think about that and do take up the advice that's available on the Ministry of Health's website around what you can and should be doing. Mm, that's Finance and Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson.
It is 17 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarere here at First Up on RNZ National. So between now and the end of the programme, you're going to hear what's happening on Morning Report. Also a leading ESR scientist joining us to discuss this COVID variant soup pretty much. And also we set the record straight on whether the right Reverend Kane Williamson did anything dodgy. Of course he didn't. Uh, when he claimed that catch against England. Look at him. He's adorable. <laughs> The professionals of RNZ are here after six. The morning report crew getting ready to go. Marnie Dunlop is here this morning. Kia ora, how are you? Morena, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, but I'm going to shut up today because I spoke too much last <laughs> time. What's happening? You're fine. Hey, look, we're obviously going into uh, follows from the financial stability report. We're talking to Adrian Orr. Uh, we've got Nicola Willis from the National Party. We've got Grant Robertson, who you had on your show today as well. We've got... Brad Olson, economist. We have the Bank Bankers Association, uh, just to to really beef up money, and money, delve money, into money, uh, money, money, <laughs> money, 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 yeah, money, pretty money. much. Yeah, it's a big we, finance morning. Yeah, it is a big finance morning, and we'll also be going down south of Canterbury just to get the latest on this big fire uh, at Woodend uh, down south, and there's been a massive evacuation of the campground uh, just north of Christchurch at Pegasus Beach. So we will be giving you the latest. Yeah, I was having a look at the weather before. Very hopeful that a lot of that rain that's you know that we've been talking about the last couple of days hitting the west coast. I was hoping I'd sort of make it over there to help them, but it looks like the wind's going to be there instead. So that's yeah. never good. Never, yeah, never yeah. Good. So um, yeah, we'll bring bring you the latest there, and, and fingers crossed, and also going to the west coast to see what the latest is with the heavy rain that had been forecast there and how they're doing. I think some schools have been uh, cancelled today. Mm. So yeah, just see how their preparations are going and how they're holding up. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Marnie Thanks. Dunlop, who's uh, with you after six there for Morning Report. Well, yes, in the aftermath of New Zealand's loss to England at the T20, T20 Cricket World Cup, one particular incident has got social media all abuzz. Black Caps captain Aotearoa golden child Kane Williamson found himself in the middle of a controversy, or controversy we'll go with because it's sport, with a catch that he claimed from Joss Butler, clearly found upon replay to have touched the ground. Now, we noticed a fair bit of trolling happening online, with these keyboard warriors even calling the nigh-on unimpeachable Kane Williamson a cheater. I know. Was it an honest mistake, or was he caught in the act? Well, we sent Leonard Powell down to the local cricket ground, Victoria Park, to get the decision of the people. On a sunny day in Auckland, it wasn't hard to find plenty of people going into bat for Captain Kane. I mean, it's Kane Williamson. He, If he says he took a catch, he took a catch. No, I think he honestly didn't know it touched the ground. Uh, I don't think he was trying to be sneaky. I think he planned to catch that and it didn't go so well. All I know is that when you're in the air diving for balls like that, half the time you don't know whether or not you've caught it or not. Wouldn't life be easier if everything was able to be slow mode? <laughs> no, it's hard to put a sneaky one with all the cameras watching you. I think he's pretty honest. But not everyone was so convinced. Do you think he knew it had touched the ground? Yes. You couldn't help but... No, you dropped it. I don't think he cheated. I think he just didn't own up to the fact that he had dropped the ball. As a player, I think you always know. Definitely, 100%. I think he knew. I saw it, you saw it, we all saw it. It touched the grass. Especially if it touches the ground, I think he would have known that it like came back towards his hands. He would have definitely known, I reckon, yeah. I think he must have known. I just think he should have owned up straight away that he wasn't sure that he caught it. He sort of got up and it seemed like he was claiming the catch. It begged the question, would opinions be different if the player involved was, say, Australian? Yes, I would call him a dirty cheater. All right, so which Australian player is he? <laughs> Take your pick. 
Well, I just don't think you could put a player like that in a yellow shirt and believe that he was an Australian player. Yeah, probably a little bit different, eh, if he was an Australian player. They're not regarded as being very honest, are they? I mean, you'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. Might feel a little bit different, given their history. I don't like to get political. And after checkpoints, Lisa Owen raised the question in the office of whether this was as bad as the infamous Australian sandpaper incident. I put it to the public. I know I just said I don't like to get political, but this is no, 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 nowhere near close. No, of course not. The sandpaper incident is a deliberate act. It's a decision, a premeditated decision to cheat. And something like that happens in the moment. No, no, it's not as bad. If it is being a bit sneaky, then the sandpaper is definitely sneakier. Nowhere near as bad. Completely different ball game. This is one of those ones that's 50-50, you're unsure. When you walk out with sandpaper in your pocket, you know what you're doing. Nothing will ever be as bad as the sandpaper incident. It's outrageous. And a final word from none other than the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Sport and Recreation, Grant Robertson. I know Kane Williamson and he's a very, very honest and straight up guy. So I'm sure that he wouldn't have claimed the catch if he didn't think he might have got it. I did see that bit of the game and I did notice that he was a bit uncertain. He was diving, he fell and obviously he wasn't sure what had happened to the ball. So he's a good guy, Kane, and I don't think he would mislead anyone. Mm. I remember too, when he was bowling with that bent arm, it wasn't, it was just an unusual action, okay, he wasn't chucking, it's just his arm was bent past where it was supposed to be, that's all, it's Kane. Grant Robertson there finishing that report from the Minister of Crocs, Leonard Powell. Keen listeners to the show would have heard uh, two words yesterday called variant soup. Now that's one of the new phrases being used to describe what's happening with COVID-19 in this country at the moment. It's got some experts pretty worried too, so let's speak to an expert. Uh, He's the head of bioinformatics and genomics at ESR. It is Joop de Licht. Joop, thank you very much for your time this morning. So what, what what, what do you mean with variant soup? Yeah, good morning. Um, so what we mean with that is that it's it's no longer just one variant like Alpha, Beta, Delta or, or Omicron. It's it's a whole collection of these variants and they they might not get the fancy Greek letter treating anymore, but they're they're different enough that we treat them separately. So those original strains, the, the, the early ones we heard about, are they still alive on planet Earth or have they extinguished themselves? Um, some of them might still be hiding somewhere in a, in a deep corner, but mostly what we're seeing at the moment, they're all descendants of Omicron. So uh, can you estimate maybe how many variants that we currently have going around in New Zealand? Yeah, so at New Zealand, it, it's still sort of manageable, and, and the variant soup is really what's described in Europe. So in New Zealand, there's sort of seven big ones that we're sort of tracking on on what we call our watch list because they're the ones that internationally have sort of caused waves. Uh, But there was one report from Denmark where in a month they saw over 150 different uh, variants. Oh, wow. So what are the implications of for treatment, I suppose, once you get the soup as opposed to what we have known previously? Yeah, so the biggest thing is that it makes everything harder to predict um, disease severity, effectiveness, because uh, the number of people that get any one variant is less. So the power to detect um, those characteristics is also less. It's amazing. So are we are we currently in a new wave of COVID? Because I see there were quite a few cases reported last week. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things happening. One is that there's some of that variant soup is arriving on our shores, and, and one of the ones that 
um, sort of we're reporting about is is called BQ11, a very exciting name, I know. Uh, but that's that's one's on the rise in New Zealand, and that is likely driving up cases. And the other thing is that um, some of our relaxations are also having an effect. So the the old variant that was still around uh, BA5 is is still um, a large part of what we're currently seeing in cases. Okay. And these these each variant, does it affect you differently? For example, if you had caught the Omicron earlier on, would you be able to tell that, that you'd caught a different uh, variant or would you just you'd just feel sick? Um, now you're, you're unfortunately still going to feel sick, uh, but like there are some indications that, for example, the fact that we've had a, a BA5 wave um, means that you're slightly less likely to catch uh, one of these new variants. And there are some indications from Europe that, that overall um, uh, hospitalization rates um, that, that went up quite quickly are now starting to come down again. So there is some hope that it means that it's sort of on average slightly milder. But you as an individual, uh, you might be the unlucky one that actually catches it much worse than the first time around. Right. Now, you're one of the scientists who's still doing the genomic sequencing on the PCR test. So you get to see the results. What is of particular concern for you right now when you look at that data? Um, I think that the, the biggest concern is is that there is um, a, a large rise again and that that's sort of um, persisting. So that it's not just a blip um, and that there is a wave coming because in the end, it's not really the biggest problem, the variant, unless we get a really bad one, the biggest problem is that there's a wave and that um, some of those vulnerable people that were safe before uh, might get hit this time round. Mm, yeah, that's that's always a worry, isn't it? So, uh, you know, for example, I I know that we've got uh, still you're still supposed to wear them on you know into pharmacies or what have you. I went into a retailer the other day, which is a, a pharmacy chain, and no one was in there uh, wear, wearing masks. Like they, they, only the workers were were wearing them as well. Um, how hard do you think it's going to be to convince the public that have got out of that habit that hey, maybe you want to be doing this again? Uh, yeah, that, that's a really good question, and, and so maybe someone that that, that studies um, sort of population dynamics <laughs> can speak to that more eloquently than I can. But I think yeah. we we have seen that we could come together as as a team around some of these issues, and in other countries we have seen that it can be normalised. So I don't think it's impossible. Uh, but yeah, we we have dropped some of those um, not very invasive but very good practices, and the same way that we all um, not necessarily love wearing a seatbelt, we all do it when we get into the car. Mm. So if if our collective thinking can be brought to that level, that it's just a good thing to do, and that no matter what variant you get, the mask is going to be helping. Um, I would hope that we can get to that point. So if we don't change our habits. Uh, what's your prediction for COVID this summer? Um, well, I think that the, the the only safe prediction is that there is going to be a wave. Um, how bad it is is going to be partially dependent on, on people's behaviour, but also these new variants. And, and they are around and they are causing waves. So that's the one certainty. Um, and we will lose loved ones. 
Yeah, that's horrible. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time, sir. There is the head of bioinformatics and uh, gen- genomics at ESR. That is Yup de Licht. Yeah, I mean, it's up to us, everybody. Here's another one. Ari, mask wearing. I haven't stopped because I work at a school. A number of staff and students have gone off with COVID in the last two weeks. So good idea to keep your mask on. Someone said, Nathan, someone near a microphone is shuffling papers noisily. Uh, that, that was actually Grant who's mucking around with his phone. Sorry, can't do uh, <laughs> much about that one as well. Sorry, that was Mr. Robson. Uh, another one, politicians appearing on reality TV attempt to leverage personality over policy. Unfortunately, exposure often equals votes unless you're watching Dancing with the Political Spectrum and not Dancing with second-rate celebra wannabes. It's not really fair. Also, no one needs to see David Seymour twerk, says Al. Uh, Steve from Wilton says... Oh, so Steve Wilton says... Uh, Atamaria uh, Nathan, look, I watched most of New Zealand's innings last night. I can assure you, Willingson dropped that catch. It was so clear from side on. Oh, Steve, it's Kane. Yeah, he totally dropped it. Uh, good morning, Nathan. Always enjoy the show, but why no word on Julian Assange from the UK or the hacking of Liz, Fuss, or Liz Truss's emails? We'll, we'll try and get to those too. Thank you very much uh, for your feedback. Always have yourselves a fantastic day. Morning Report is next with Marnie and Corin. Uh, if you like First Up, listen to it again. Download the podcast. Take it with you. And myself and the team will be back to farewell the week on the Friday. We'll be back in your ears. A bop bop.